Well, this morning you're here and it's warm. Let's take our Bibles and go to Isaiah 37. Isaiah chapter 37, Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah has been called the Bible in miniature. 66 chapters equating, equaling the 66 books of the Bible. And I hope that Isaiah has become one of your favorite books in the Bible. The gospel miniature. The Lord Jesus Christ is seen, his persona is seen over and over again in Isaiah 37. And that's been good since we've been going there because it's going to get better as we get to chapter 40 to 66. And we're going to look at Hezekiah for three messages. This morning I'm combining chapters 36 and 37. And I want you to scroll down with it just because we don't have time to get into everything here. There's so much here. But go down to verse 14 with me this morning. Before I begin reading, there's one of two classes of people here today. Nobody's exempt. You're either in a very difficult time, which the word that describes that is a crisis, or you will be going into a difficult time and you'll have a personal crisis. Everyone will have a crisis. Crises are real. Crises, they're painful. Crises are stressful. Crises determine they're the test, the litmus test of what kind of Christian we really are. A crisis. When March 15th hit, that was the last time we assembled as a church before everything closed down. We've had a lot of crises in our church. Several more just walking through the parking lot I found out about. They're real. And I think for most of us, when it's a crisis, our crisis... Our mind is in a fog. We're very unsure. We're very unclear. It doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are. Crises determine or bring out what's really in us. Or to tell us what is not in us. And we're going to see one of the great Christians of the Bible. Who for 14 years leading into this passage. Was bold. Was courageous. Maybe even before I even use that, consecrated and godly, heart for God. He didn't let family dynamics that he grew up with, where he had a very toxic family. A father that was not a good example. He didn't blame anybody. He didn't grow up with a critical spirit. He didn't have a bad heart about that. And from day one, when he became king, God used him. As we get to chapters 36 and 37, we see a man in a crisis that you would never want to pray for for yourself. He was in a big crisis. And I want you to see the prayer of this man by the name of Hezekiah. You want to write this down. Hezekiah's name means Jehovah is my strength. But I'm going to tell you as we read through this, he didn't feel very strong. 
Jehovah is my strength. Verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, God of Israel, El Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. And you ought to underline that right now, amen? Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thy ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which has sent to reproach the living God. You want to write this down. Sennacherib's name means sin multiplied brothers. Sin multiplied brothers. Incline thy ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which has sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Notice verse 20. Now, that's what we want God to do when we pray. Now, now, therefore, O Lord our God, save us from the hand's hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. I'd like to ask you to indulge me for a few minutes this morning. So I preach a message entitled, How to Pray Through a Crisis. It's one thing to pray. How do you pray through a, conf- uh, through a crisis in your life? We want to look at crisis praying. Because I'm going to tell you, either you're in one now, or you're about to go into one. And you're going to see the makings of a crisis very identical to what some have gone through and many of us will go through. Father, we ask this morning that with a sober heart, a tender conscience, we humble ourselves before you today. We look into the mirror of God's holy word and help us not to forget what manner of man we see. And through your word today, I pray that every heart will become tender and good soil upon which the precious seed of your word will fall upon. We thank you your word is precious. It's holy. We thank you this evening, this morning, that it's invincible. It giveth light to our feet. It's a lamp to our, a light unto our feet, a lamp to our path. It's perfect, converting the soul. It's powerful. It's living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrows. It's a discerner of thoughts and tents of the heart. And Lord, there's some spiritual surgery, God, I need you to do this morning. I need your heart, the word, the sword of your word to drive deep, to cut deep. Perhaps there's layers of, of uh, hardened skin, of callousness that needs to be cut through. There's some stony hearts that we need the hammer of God's word to break in pieces. There's some cinder wood right now that God, we need the fire of God's word to set on fire. We ask this morning that you answer by fire. Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us how to pray through a crisis. Teach us, Lord, how to pray so that, Lord, we get a hold of you. Show us this morning to have power with God. I'm reminded today of what the psalmist said. He said, thou hast made my horn, my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. And God, when we're weak, when our enemies overwhelm us, they're bigger than us. Lord, we need strength and we need the spirit of God. And Father, I pray come down upon us, Lord, in a beautiful way as only you can. We want you to get the glory. And when it's all said and done for, we pray the word of God will be honey to our palate and sweetness to our tongue. Bless the service this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Last Thursday, three men that were fishermen got in a 25-foot blue and white vessel, fishing vessel, off the island of Pulop. Pulop is one of many islands that make up the, the chain of Micronesia. Some of the best freshwater fishing you'll do in the world is right off of Micronesia. And um, they set off to do a fishing thing about 25 miles from where they, they launched off. And somehow because of the currents and the wind, they got off course, which is very easy to happen in those South Pacific waters. They got off, they got off course and they wound up 118 miles away from where they needed to be. They got lost. They only had enough fuel for going about 25, 30 miles out and back. They ran out of fuel. And as you can imagine, though they were expert mariners on the water, being out of fuel and the winds blowing you, you have no idea where you're going. Somehow, they made it to an uninhabited island somewhere in that Micronesian island chain, which is a very long, extensive chain. When they didn't come back to shore, they didn't come back to their docking point, the people there at Pulop recognized something bad happened. And they notified various maritime groups, equivalent to our Coast Guard. Australia sent a battleship out, Oh, they actually had a battleship out there, and they, they went out purposely, got off course to try to find this fishing vessel. The United States Defense Army was contacted, Air Force was contacted on the island of Guam, and they sent a plane out to look for these men. They went out Friday throughout the whole area, many miles, couldn't find them. Saturday they went out, couldn't find them. Sunday, this American Air Force plane that took off from Guam went over this large, uninhabited island. Not very large, but it was a large island. And he looked at the white sand, and there in the land were the letters S-O-S. 
And they saw it very visibly from the sky, looking down for this aerial view, SOS. He scanned a little bit further, and a couple hundred feet away was the blue and white fishing vessel. He radioed from that plane, we think we found them, we found an SOS and the vessel. They dropped us some food and supplies and some water to help those men. Monday, they were rescued by the Australian battleship. They sent some people to get them. And needless to say, everybody in the process was very relieved. If you're familiar with the SOS, you know that's basically a code term, help is needed. This morning, I want to preach you a message about your SOS and my SOS to heaven when help is needed. The Assyrians... On, were, were in control of things in the Middle East at that time, as far as the world was concerned. The Assyrians date back to the founding of the city of Asher on the Tigris River about 2000 B.C. By 1100 B.C., they had fortified themselves, and the Assyrians became one of the great mighty world powers of the world. You study your world history, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Grecians, the Babylonians. These were great world powers. The Egyptians. And Assyria became one of the mighty forces of that time. In 722 B.C., they conquered Israel. and took its capital, Samaria. They took their people captive. Israel, as God had prophesied, was no longer a nation because of their idolatries. The king of Assyria at that time got his eyes on Judah, Tiglath-Pilesar. His son Sargon began the process by starting to take the cities in the lowlands. Libna, Lachish, all the defense cities as the Bible speaks about in chapter 36 and 37. The defense city of Judah. They started taking the lowland cities. They started focusing on the water sources because they wanted to attack it. Hezekiah, like his father Ahaz, went up to the upper, upper conduit. He kind of closed it down so they wouldn't attack his water. And Hezekiah literally is facing the deepest, most terrible crisis of his life right now. He's facing the fact that a great army has been sent out, has circled the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city on a hill. A large contingent of the army of Assyria was there. And they sent a messenger out to him. That's our background right now. It's now about... 714, 715 B.C. And we're looking at this man by the Hezekiah who's up, beyond, and over his head in a crisis. But I want to tell you this morning, crises though they're real, crises though they're painful, crises though they hurt, I want to tell you this morning, God is a God over the crisis. God excels over crisis. God is the God who defeats every crisis. And this morning we want to see how God teaches you and I from his holy word how to pray through a crisis. I want you to see three things about this crisis this morning. Number one, I want you to see a crisis declared. A crisis declared. Look at chapter 36. We're going to see all of 36 for a moment. This crisis declared. Now Hezekiah is on the 14th year of his reign. This didn't happen on the first year. He's been on the throne for 14 years. He was 25 years of age, and we can read about that in 2 Kings, I think starting with chapter 16 or 17, and then 2 Chronicles chapter 30, 31. He's been on the throne since age 25. About the 10th year, 9th or 10th year of his reign, 
He saw what the Assyrians were doing to Israel. He sent some money to them. He tried to buy, buy them off. The Bible tells us he sent 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. On Tuesday of this week, I did a calculation based on the spot value of silver and gold. And if it was today's equivalent, in terms of the 30, uh, 300 talents of silver, that's equivalent to $12 million. 30 talents of gold, based on Tuesday spot prices for gold, would be equivalent to 90000 He paid them off, listen to this, in today's dollar equivalent, he paid them off $102 million to go away. Now sometimes we think that money will pay all, take care of all of our problems. We think if we have enough money, we can pay off a problem, we can deal with it. And that's what Hezekiah was thinking. He, in fact, he said he, had, he thought he had so much gold and silver inside the temple of God. He took temple and gold out of the silver to pay for it. And let me tell you this, you never take God's money to pay off your problem. Amen? You never take God's money to pay off your problem there. But he did. And so they thought they got rid of the problem. So now we look at it, 701 B.C., and we get to 30, Isaiah 36. He's a seasoned king, having been on the throne for 14 years. He's about 39, 38, going to 39 years of age. And we see this crisis declared. Now, I want you to notice very quickly because of time. There's two things about this crisis I want us to see. Number one, there's a messenger in the crisis. Did you notice that? Notice verses 1 and 2 with me, please. The Bible says this, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah, and he took them. Now the defense cities were the cities on the, lower, on the lowland. In other words, you had to get to those lowland cities before you could get to Jerusalem. He took them. He was battling with Libna and Lachish. We read about that in another passage of Scripture. Verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. Now, there's a lot there, but I don't have time to get in. Let me say a couple things. Whenever there's a crisis, there's always a messenger to the crisis. The messenger in this happens to be a man by the name of Rabshakeh. Now, Rabshakeh actually was his title. That's not his real name. It, it was a title. Rabshakeh means the chief cupbearer of the king. This man was in the most trusted position of all the kingdom. He was the, the king's cupbearer. He had to taste and sample the food. He had to know who prepared the food. He had to know everything about the kitchen details. He had to know everything about the culinary details. He had to know about who brought the food and dropped it off. He had to know who the servants were. He had to know who the soldier. He had to know everybody in process. This man was like a chief of staff. He had to know everything going on within the kingdom. He had to know what's going on because basically he was the chief safety man on behalf of the king. Aside from sampling the food, he had to know everything leading up to that. And that man's life was at risk there. And Rabshakeh had earned himself to be the king's confidant. He had earned himself the privilege of being the king's chief, chief spokesman. And Rabshakeh was his title. Rabshakeh represents a messenger, and he comes with a great army against the king of, 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 of Judah here. Now, I want you to notice this this morning. When a crisis comes... It always is preceded by a messenger. The messenger is the one who drops the bad news on you. Satan has messengers that he will use to cause us to be fearful and doubt the power and sovereignty of God. You see, even beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the messenger was Satan himself as a slithering, subtle old serpent. 
slithering in the sand, coming up to Eve, engaging in a conversation, and he caused doubts in her mind by saying, Yea, has God said. Satan's famous word, his famous word he likes to use is the conjunction, the word if. He'll put that thought in your mind, if this happens, and if this happens. He makes us to doubt what's going on. When he came to tempt Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he kept using, as he tempted Jesus, he said, if you do this, I will do that. Satan is a roaring lion. Lions, when they go out, when they want to announce their presence and to intimidate and to instill fear within the animals that have got the attack or the animal kingdom, they let off a fearful roar. Rabchaka is an example, example of a roaring lion. He's an example of the messenger of a crisis. I read the story about, it was kind of a funny story about two explorers on a jungle safari and they're out, they had read a book on what to do and all these things and they went out and they went into the bush country. And as they got in the bush country, the lion came out of the bushes and the lion had been stalking them very stealthily and jumped out and right in front of them and let off a big roar. Needless to say, as the lion roared, they were both scared and they kind of just startled in their tracks. And one turned to the other and said, let's not, be, let's not run. We read the book already what to do. And it tells us in the book when a lion or some ferocious animal comes, we're to sit still in our tracks and maybe he'll avoid us. And the other, the, other, the other guy who was with him got, was a little bit more scared and concerned. He wanted to take off. And he said this. He said, now you've read the book and I've read the book. But the question is, has the lion read the book? And I remind you today, the lion knows that when he roars, he can instill fear in our heart. He roars at a time when we least suspect it. He roars at a time when we're weak. He roars at a time when our defenses are low. And you'll notice here that the lion is roaring through Rapshaka. He comes to the army, and as we'll see from the rest of the chapter, he instills fear in the hearts of the people. Let me say this today. The messenger of a crisis could be the following. It could be the lion's roar of a medical diagnosis and the doctor saying through a letter, I'm sorry to tell you, you've been diagnosed with. Or the doctor saying, there's nothing we can do for you. Or it might be the lion's roar of legal trouble. Perhaps a, a lawsuit being served on you. Or government agencies serving you a letter of cease and desist. Or it might have, we have the power to take away or the power to find you. Or we're going to shut you down. Or the lion's roar of a scorn when you try to do something and you didn't succeed the first time. And the lion, the, 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 level, the lion is saying something like this. So the messenger says, you're a failure. You're no good. You have no worth. Why are you even trying at all? And you feel this discouragement. There's the messenger of a crisis. But notice, not only is there the messenger of a crisis, notice we see the means by which the messenger brings the crisis. Notice very quickly how this crisis unfolds. In verse 2, we notice that this crisis, the message begins with the, the army. The Bible says, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto king Hezekiah with a great army. Hey, listen, the enemy always likes to intimidate us by its size. By its size. We're bigger than you. Goliath likes to impress with his size. Sihon and Og like to impress with their size. The sons of Anakim like to impress with their size. The armies of Assyria wanted to impress with their size. We feel they're bigger than us. We feel that they can conquer us and overcome us. Not only did they intimidate by size, they intimidated by speech. And that's what we see in chapter 36. The speech of Rabshakeh was sent to cause fear and intimidation in their hearts. Notice what happens. Beginning in verse 4, he says, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? He says, What do you think you have your faith in? Who are you trusting in? Verse, verse 6 and 9. He says, listen, you've reached out to Egypt. 
Egypt can't help you. He's saying, you thought the world will help you? The world will cannot help you. Look at verse 7. He says, even the Lord can't help you. He says, but if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Then he said in verse 8, therefore give more money. He says, give us more pledges. He said, I've received your money already. Now he received the money and verbally said, okay, I'll leave you alone. But he wasn't going to keep his promise. He'd already built them out of $102 million. And now he wanted more money. He says, send me more pledges. And then he said this. He said, you know what? I'll tell you what. To make you feel good, you send me more money and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you have enough courage to ride out of your city. He said, I don't even think you have enough courage. Listen, he was intimidating them by telling them, if you trust in Egypt, if you trust in the Lord, you trust in your king, nothing, no one there is going to help you. Then he uses this in verse 11. That he starts talking to them in a language they couldn't understand. And a lot of times, the, the enemy will use language we don't understand. Very typical. You get served with a lawsuit. You're trying to read through that. Unless you're a lawyer, you don't understand everything that's going on in a lawsuit. And so they asked him, they said, well, speak to us, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Assyrian language. In verse 12, he says, you know what? You're just a bunch of losers anyway. He said in verse 12, but Rabshakeh has said, hath my master sent me to thy master and, not, and, not, and to thee to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall that they meet their own dung and drink their own pissed with you. He uses crude language. He's swearing at them. He's cursing them. And as we get to the end of the chapter, it gets even worse. He says, don't trust in God. He says, don't trust in Egypt. He says later on, don't trust in your king. Anything your king's told you, don't believe it. And he says, don't trust in your God. He starts taking God's name in vain. And he blasphemes God. He says, God can't do anything for you. God's not going to be there for you. He said, he mocked God. In verse 13, he says, hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. In other words, he's pushing up the king of Assyria on a platform thinking he can elevate him over God. You have to watch this. The kings of Assyria had defeated 46 consecutive nations when they got to Judah. They thought they were invincible. They thought that no one could beat them. And they're saying, listen, we've taken all the gods of all the nations we defeated. And just before coming to Judah, they attacked the nation of Syria, which if you look at your map, is just north of Israel. Just over the hills. And then he mentions here several of the cities, the key cities of Syria that they had conquered. And he says this, we've taken all their gods and we've burned their gods in the fire what good do their gods do for them? Listen, if their gods could help you, your God cannot help you as well. Now, you and I sit here, if you don't have a crisis, that doesn't bother you. But when you're sitting there, and you're like Eliakim and Joah and Shebna, you're going from fear to cowardice to panic to anxiety to about you're ready to drop dead of fear. Because what he's done through his speech is dismantle their morale, their courage, any thoughts of trusting God. Watch this. When you're in a crisis, when it's your crisis, the devil wants you and I to be in such a place we're too frightened, we're too paralyzed, we're too anxious, we're too worried to pray, and our faith might go from here down to the bottom, and we have no strength with which to pray. 
They're in a crisis. They're in a crisis. And when you're in a crisis, you begin to gravitate towards compromise. Look at verse 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah. That's another thing the messengers of a crisis will tell you. They'll tell you, don't listen to your spiritual leadership. Whatever perhaps a sponsor told you, a godly Sunday school teacher told you, whatever your pastor tells you, hearken not to them. Hearken not to Hezekiah. For thus saith the king of Assyria. When he said that, he's basically saying he's casting aspersion against the word of God. Make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me and eat ye every one of his vine, every one of his fig tree, and every one of his drink ye every one of the, of the water's own sister. And he says this, compromise, make an agreement with me and I'll take care of you. A crisis declared. What's your crisis this morning? What's the crisis that's intimidating you? What's the crisis that's paralyzed you that you can't pray? What's the crisis that in your heart of hearts is leading you to think, God can't help me. The preacher can't help me. Church can't help me. The word of God is powerless. A crisis declared. What's your crisis this morning? Secondly, go to chapter 37. We see a crisis declared. But I want you to notice the crux of our message. The crisis defense. Thank God this morning we have a defense that God gives us against our crisis. A crisis defense. Notice in chapter 37, the entire chapter is dedicated to that. Notice very quickly. The first thing we see in a crisis defense is a principle. Now, go actually go back to chapter 36. After all these words that Rabshakeh had sent to them, you can imagine that they've been pretty verbally abused. They've been pretty much beaten up. Before the fight even started, they were already weakened in their knees. What do you do when you have a crisis and all the words have really attacked you? Well, we see a principle in verse 21, and it's this principle. Notice what it says. When they heard all those things, they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Here's principle number one. When the devil attacks you, when you're in a crisis, answer it not a word. Don't respond to it. Don't tell the crisis that you're scared. Don't tell the crisis that you're anxious. Don't tell the crisis who you are. Answer it not a word. When the devil starts talking to you, don't have a discussion with the devil. Don't answer him. That's why Eve got in trouble. When Eve started talking back to the devil, that's what got her in trouble. Don't engage in conversation with the enemy. Answer him not. Don't tell him your fears. Don't agree, with, don't agree with him with his solution for you. Don't tell him that you give up. Don't give him an opportunity to strengthen his stronghold in your life. Don't answer him anything. Answer him not a word. We see the principle. But notice, secondly, we see the praying. Now remember, as we get a crisis, we didn't, we didn't ask for the crisis. Amen? The crisis was sent into our lives. And when the crisis comes... And you feel like you've been dismantled and stripped apart. 
Number one, to answer not a word. Number two, we learn how to pray through Christ. I say this all the time. We must pray like we're in a trial or God sends us trials to teach us to pray. We see a crisis, but we see praying. Now, if you're going through crisis, I want you to notice real quickly in verses 14 to 20, God teaches you and I how to pray through a crisis. We know the elementary aspects of prayer. Prayer is worship. Prayer is work. You get to praying any length of time, it's work. We pray when we worry. We pray when there's a war. And Hezekiah was in a war. Prayer is part of spiritual warfare. If you're in spiritual warfare, you cannot be in war without prayer. That's why when we read Ephesians chapter 6 about the whole armor of God, it's all summed up with verse 18. It says, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. P.T. Forsyth said, Prayer is a weapon, a mighty weapon in a terrible conflict. Our prayers are to be a continual, conscious, earnest effort of battle. The battle against whatever is not God's will. Notice what we see, beginning in verse chapter 37, uh, chapter 37, verse 1. Notice, first of all, we see Hezekiah's remorseful prayer. Now, we're going to see Hezekiah pray more than once. In verse 1, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah bring these words to him. Now, they're weeping and they're crying. Their closer went, they told, they told Hezekiah word by word everything Rabshakeh said. In chapter 37, verse 1, it says, It came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Now his praying was remorseful. He took off his royal garments and he put on the equivalent of a potato sack, burlap. What he put on resembled what people would put on when they went into seasons of mourning or when they knew, so people would know publicly that they were in mourning, they had grief, and something heavy was on their heart. Now a lot of us wear our worry, our sorrow on our countenances. Sad to say, amen. We wear it on our faces. Our faces reflect what's going on in our soul. Very few of us go beyond just wearing our sorrow. Hezekiah did what you should do as a spiritual Christian. He changed his sackcloth, but he changed his attitude. And he changed purposefully to go into the house of the Lord to pray because he recognized going back to his forefathers, that Solomon had built the temple of God as a place when God's people got in trouble, they would go there to pray. He remembered he had a forefather by the name of Jehoshaphat who had a very similar problem. He got a letter from the, uh, the nations of Moab and Ammon saying they would attack him. He didn't know what to do. And he went up to the house of the Lord and there he went to pray. He knew that God's house was built 
to be a house of prayer. He knew that if he went to God's house, he better come prepared to meet God. He changed his royal garments to realize he may be an earthly king, but he was not the eternal king. And he recognized that his robes did not compare to the robes of righteousness that our Lord Jesus Christ wears. He humbled himself. He went into the house of God and he went into that place and there's a remorseful prayer. I remind you this morning, God wants you and I to get to the place when we're in a crisis that we come to him with a broken heart. We come to him with tears. We come to him showing him and acknowledging him. We have worry. We have anxiety. We are stressed out. We're not sure what to do. But God hears us in spite of all that. You say, well, verse 1 didn't say he prayed. I promise you he prayed. He didn't go there to sit around. He knew the word of God says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Let me tell you why our country's in a mess. Let me tell you why revival tarries. We pray without remorse, without sorrow, without brokenness. This man was broken because he realized the fate of the nation of Judah hung between him and his prayers for that nation. We see a second thing. Notice in verses 2 through 8, he requested prayer. After he prayed, the Bible says in verse 2, he said, Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shabna the scribe, and the elders of the priests. Now, who did he send? Well, he took men who had influence, men who had a heart for God, men who were true spiritual leaders, and they followed his example. They changed their government garments and put on sackcloth as well. And he sent them, he says, what I want you to do is go to the prophet Isaiah. And notice what he says here. He says, he covered, they recovered sackcloth and he sent them unto Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, that he gave them a message, thus saith Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy. Notice the description he gives of how weak they were. For the children are come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. That's a pretty sad description of their plight. It may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakalim, the king of Assyria, his master sent to reproach the living God, and reprove the words which the Lord thy God has heard. Notice this request. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. They requested prayer. Now, it's a good thing to ask other people to pray for you after you've prayed. Make sure when you're in a crisis, you've prayed first. Make sure the crisis, you've spent some time with God. Make sure in the crisis that you show that you have a heart of the humility. But there comes a time we must realize it's okay to engage other people to pray with us. It's okay to ask other people to pray for us. It's okay to get God's people to pray. We realize here they, walked, they wanted Isaiah to pray for them. They knew Isaiah could get a hold of God. They wanted Isaiah to pray for them, if you would. They wanted to acknowledge that they needed the, the Lord's help in that. Let me say a few things to you about, about praying for others. Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Paul prayed. He said, brethren, pray for us. Uh, we think about many other times when Peter was in prison and the Bible says the church in Acts chapter 12 got together. They had an all night church prayer meeting. The Bible says prayer was made unto God of the church for him. Prayer for others is a good thing. We have a prayer works ministry that we started at the start of the, uh, 
The COVID-19 crisis, we've asked people to pray. I'm thankful we're seeing people saved. I'm thankful we're seeing prayers answered. I'm thankful this past, uh, past two weeks, we're seeing a number of prayer requests on our prayer page where people who've had cancer have been healed of their cancer and they have cancers in remission. I'm thankful for people that are past cancer situations and others, God is sustaining them and giving them special grace. I mean, we've seen God do a number of things in so many different lives right now. And it's a good thing to pray for people. And we read later on this after, after Isaiah prays, Isaiah gives them a word of encouragement beginning with verse 5 to 7. And the word of encouragement is this. He says, okay, I prayed for you, but I know that you're still worried, and I know that you still have anxiety, and I know that you're still uh, conscious about the fact there's an army outside your walls. He said, let me give you a word of encouragement. And basically what he tells them in verses 6 through 8 of the five. notice this. He says, number 1 in verse 6, be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard. Now we need that. Because the enemy specializes and intimidating you and I through words. David faced that, and he said this in Psalm 37:4. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me out of all my fears. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. Listen, this morning, he said, be not afraid, for he says, of the words which thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. When the devil says, God can't help you, when the devil says, the king can't help you. When the devil says, you're, you're hopeless without hope. The devil is blaspheming God. He says, be not afraid of his word. Now listen, why did he give him a word of encouragement? Because you know what? It's easy for us to get our eyes and our heart on the words of something secular and get our eyes off the word of God. He wanted them to be reminded, get your eyes back on the word of God. Notice verse 7. He says, listen, God said, I've heard your prayer. Don't be afraid, number one. Number two, I'll send a blast on him. Now what he meant by that, I'm going to send a strong wind. What he's really saying is, I'm going to send, I'm going to send trouble to Rabshaka. I'm going to blow a wind on him. I'm going to blow him down. That's, that's what I think of him. I'm going to blow him down. Now that's God demonstrating how powerful he is. And then he said this, he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. Now what he's saying there, he's going, to hear, he's going to hear some rumblings about other things, and I'm going to send him away. And then he said this, notice he said, and then I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now you want to underline that phrase. I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now let me tell you this. When you've prayed, when you've prayed, make sure that you go immediately to your Bible, and you take your Bible, and you ask yourself, what does God have to say about this? You ask God, Lord, do you have a word for me? And you find that immediately after you pray, God always has a special word for you and I during those seasons. And that's what God was showing them. He says, if you don't get your, it's one thing to pray, but you can become an emotional believer and all you're thinking about is what you prayed about. And then the next thing you do, you start thinking about the words of the enemy. And God was saying, I don't want you to think about them. I want you to think about what I'm going to do for you. Don't think about what they'll do to you. Be just concerned what I'm going to do to them. Now, if all they did was just stop there, they had the victory. Amen? God said, I'll send him a blast. He'll hear a rumor, go back to his own land. And he said, on top of that, he will fall by a sword in his own land. God said it. I believe it. Amen? Rapshaka gets word. 
He gets word from King Sennacherib. Hey, I'm fighting a battle down here. You might want to come down to give me some help. Rabshakeh turns his attention away. He goes down. And he descends down the hill to go help the king. While he's doing that, they get word the king of Ethiopia wants to attack them. So Rabshakeh gets his mind back on Jerusalem. Because he's not done with them yet. He had 185,000 men that are up there waiting for him to come back. And we see the prayer of God's people resisted. We see a, prayer, a, a remorseful prayer. We see a request for prayer, but resistance to prayer. Now watch what happens. When you're in a crisis, you've prayed and poured out your heart to God. God proceeds, therefore, from his word, or maybe from the preacher, through a message where he gives you assurance. And you've asked other people to pray. And now you've got this network of God's people praying for you. That's a wonderful thing. But I'm going to tell you, the devil's not done yet. Because the devil still doesn't want you to believe in God. The devil still wants you to doubt the Lord. And so the devil gives you resistance. Here's what the soldiers, but he said, you know what? I'm calling on the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Saba. I'm calling on the God who's got an army greater than the army of Sennacherib. He called him on the God who founded his nation, the God of Israel. He said, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. You know what he's saying? I'm tired of hearing about all these other gods. There's only one God, and that's the God who made heaven and earth. Amen? There's only one God. Thou art God, and thou alone. Hey, when's the last time you said, God, there is no other God. Lord, search my heart. I love you with all my heart, soul, and mind. There is no other God except God alone. He said in verse 17, this is how weak he was. Remember, his name means Jehovah is my strength. Lord, incline thy ear, O Lord. Hear me. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see me. And see and hear the words which Sennacherib has sent to reproach the living God. You know, more than his own personal safety, he was saddened. That this king, this heathen king, had blasphemed the name of God. And Sennacherib is like our secular universities, pollution-driven world, an atheistic society we live in. They don't believe in a living God. And he was said, and he said here, he said, listen, they, they've said to reproach a living God. And he said, it's the truth, Lord. Now, I'm not going to deny it. They, they, they've defeated all these, these other gods, and they've burned their, they, these other countries, and they've burned their gods into the fire. And then he said in verse 20, Now therefore, Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even the holy. Now, now listen, he didn't pray 15 hours. So he prayed something very, very succinctly. We can learn from this. Number one, he was very specific in his praying. When we pray, if we're going to get out of a crisis, we must be specific. If we're in a crisis, we must pray from our heart. He says, now therefore, O Lord our God. He said, I've laid out my cause. Lord, save us. Save us. 
Help us. He was very specific. Lord, get me out of this mess. He didn't vacillate. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He did not vacillate. He knew God was able. He knew God was capable. He knew God was able to do exceeding abundantly above all that he asked or think. So he said, Lord, I'm just going to tell you. Lord, I need you to save us. He says, for this reason, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. A crisis defense. The crisis declared there was a message and a messenger. The crisis defense, he went to prayer. His prayer was with remorse. He requested prayer. He had resistance to his prayer. He prayed again. What happened? Notice we see the crisis defeated. A crisis defense, but a crisis defeated. And I want to remind you this morning, God specializes in defeating those crises in our lives. Watch what God does. The first thing we see in verses 21, I don't know, verses 21 to 34, I think. Let me see. 35. I've got to go quickly. First thing God does, he gives them a word of assurance again. Now, God is consistent. When you pray, go to the word of God. And in this word of assurance, he says, basically, here's what he's saying. I'm going to take care of you, Hezekiah. I'm going to take care of you. And then later on, he says, now, it's going to be a little hard. You're going to have to rebuild. He said, the first year, you'll, 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 you'll plant and sow, and you'll be fine. You'll do it the second year. He says, but the third year, you'll get to a place where you're going to get your roots downwards, and you're going to bear fruit upwards. He said, give it a little time, and things will come back together. Because he had basically, the king of Assyria had ravaged the lowlands. He'd ravaged their plantations or places like that. He says, now give it time, but you get your roots downward and you have fruit upward. Sometimes when you go through a crisis, you're devastated. You're worn out. But you know what God tells us? Now you just get back at it again and you know, it'll be a little bit here, a little bit there. But get your roots downward that you can bear fruit upwards. He gives a word of assurance. And I want to tell you this morning, I don't care what the crisis is, God's word gives us a word of insurance. But I want you to see something else. God only gave him a word of insurance. Notice we see the work of an angel. Now, he tells him later on in verse, verse, 30, verse 34, he says, By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into the city, says the Lord. Now, that's God's word. He said, he's not going to come in this city. He's not going to bother you. And he said in verse 35, for I will defend this city to save her for my sake and for my servant David's sake. He said, I'm going to save it for my purpose and because I promised David, nothing bad would happen. So notice we get to verse 36 and we see the work of an angel. Now I believe Hezekiah went to bed that night. He put his head on the pillow and he had a good night's sleep because God said he'd take care of him. And the Bible tells us an amazing thing. The angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when they rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Hey, that's God. Amen? They didn't have to lift a sword. They didn't shoot an arrow. They didn't lift a spear. God's angel went out. I wish I had more time to talk about that. God's angel went out. Who did the defeating? God did. 185,000 corpses strewn across all over the hillside there. But it gets better. God gives a word of assurance. God does the work of an angel, has the work of an angel. But God uses some wily assassins. Sennacherib gets word. His army's been defeated. 
all 185,000 of them. He's heard that not a spear was lifted, arrow shot, or sword drawn by anybody in Jerusalem. Rabshak is dead. Sennacherib quietly goes back home. And I want you to notice this with me, please. Notice, we're almost done. He departed and went <laughs> and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. Remember what God told him, that first word of assurance? He's going to go back to his city. He's going to hear a rumor, and he's going to go back to his city. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. He quietly went back. And guess where he goes? It came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his God, that Adramelech and Cherezer's sons smote him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon and his son reigned instead. Watch what happens here. He's been badly defeated. He goes to the house of his God to pray. He still is not a believer. He still does not acknowledge the living God defeated his armies. And the least suspected people in his whole kingdom, two of his sons come up behind him while he's praying and they kill him. He's assassinated. God told Hezekiah, he'll come no more into this land. He'll bother you no more. And I'm done. What irony. What irony. He goes to the house of his God and his God couldn't help him. His God failed him. Hezekiah went to the house of a living God, and his God helped him. And his God did not fail him. What am I saying this morning? Whatever your crisis is, God can do anything but fail. He's the living God. He's a God who's real. He's a God who's alive. He's a God who cannot be defeated. He's a God who does not lie. Listen, he told him once, he told him twice, I'm going to take care of this. Listen, this man, Sennacherib, should have learned from all that. He should have got on his knees before Hezekiah and said, teach me about your God. Instead, he goes back to his God, thinking his God will help him. And because of all his blasphemies, he's killed in the house of his own God. Let me say this and I'm done. You got a crisis? God teaches you how to pray through a crisis. We have a crisis defense. And when we have that crisis defense, the crisis can be defeated. I'm not sure how God's going to defeat your crisis, but he will. And you know what I like about this is that when he prayed, the first words out of his mouth were, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. If you're watching my live stream, you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, your greatest crisis is dying going to hell without Jesus Christ as your Savior. You need Christ to save you right now. You need the Lord to be your Savior. Would you call on him? Would you pledge this morning you're not going to let your crisis get the best of you? And you'll take the principles from, Hezekiah, uh, from uh, Isaiah 37 and learn how to pray through a crisis. Remorseful praying, requested praying. Yes, there will be resistance to our praying, but there can be repeated praying. And God sends a word of assurance, and he gives us the work of an angel, and he works on our behalf.